in the final chapter of the uh, book of 1 Kings. First and Second Kings were originally just one book, but as the uh, somewhere along the line in church history, with the really really huge books of Scripture, they divided them into a first and, and second. That's not true with the, the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, that's true, like with Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Um, so we start with First uh, Kings chapter twenty-two, verse one. This is God's word, eternally true. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel, but in the third year Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people is your people, my horses is your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Canaanah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are pre predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah, Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing round him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? 
One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Kanaanah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, you will find out on the day you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter into battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Aramans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of, his of the chariot and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army Every man to his town, every ma everyone to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed, and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built and inlaid with ivory, and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Ahab rested with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Here ends our reading. Uh, there's a response of thankfulness that's printed for you in your bulletin. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks indeed. Let's pray. A person sometimes can look back on his life and, and say, you know, back then when I was 17 years old or 24 years old, I, I decided this and it, it changed the person's life. Uh, I, I remember when I was uh, a senior in, in high school and, and um, I, I started realizing the importance of, of faith and started reading the Bible a little bit more. Um, I had a living Bible with uh, group pictures of groovy people on the front. 
It's called The Way. Who remembers that? Green? Yeah. Uh, so I'd read that every once in a while. Uh, but I remember um, when my friends, my, my junior year in high school, um, I really was just, uh, the, the soccer team had a lot of seniors on it. I was in classes that just happened to have a lot of seniors in it. So my junior year in high school, I really kind of hung around with the seniors more. And so I was glad when in my senior year, they came back from college uh, in December, at the end of December. And I remember talking with them and seeing a change had occurred in them. Now, um, I had not grown up in a, a, a believing church. Um, all, all my growing up, I was in, uh, we we're in churches that were theologically liberal, which essentially means they don't believe the Bible's true. Um, and, and so I wasn't surrounded by Christian people or, or it had, I didn't have Christian teaching. Um, and, and so my friends, I wasn't sorting them out by Christian or non-Christian. They were just whoever I was around. And, but I remember when these, uh, friends came back from college, you're older than me, and seeing how they had changed and how they were talking about this thing and that thing, which I just saw were harmful to their lives and, and their attitudes had changed about things. And, and there was just kind of a, a, a lost innocence, a lost spark in their eye. And, and they were interested in things that I just wasn't interested in and saw that, uh, were things that would lead me off course. Um, this now seeing, this is the, the seed of God's gospel in me, just warning me of, of ways I could go that would be harmful to me. But I thought about that a lot uh, from December on, and I, I realized sometime in the summer before I went off to college, I don't want that to happen to me. I, I don't want to become changed in those ways or what I saw to be changed for the, the worse and so I just made a simple commitment. I didn't know anything. I wasn't going to a believing church, but but I had heard that you could read through the Bible if you read three chapters a day and five on Sunday. So I had an old King James, really old, you know, old King James language and all that kind of thing. And and I did that through my freshman year of college and, and, and made it through. But it changed my life. Um, I, I could read the King James back then. I can't anymore. <laughs> I've been away from it. Uh, so long, but you can do certain things that that change that change your course. Certain decisions you can make. I want to be like this and 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 not like that. That can change. That can change everything. Um, as we look at this passage, uh, we can see something that that changes everything for us as as believers. That gives us something that gives us benefit now, and benefit in the end all streaming from what Jesus does uh, for a person. Uh, if you'd like to fill out blanks in an outline, you're welcome to do that. Um, our introduction there, there's one thing, that's your blank, there's one thing that makes the biggest difference in a person's life and eternity. It really is one thing. Um, and it's one thing for every person. The one thing a person can do that makes the biggest difference in their life and in their eternity is whether or not he or she has faith in Jesus. That changes everything. Changes the course of a person's life. Uh, changes uh, what kind of friends they have. Uh, changes how they see life, how they deal with difficulties, how they deal with nice things that happen to them. 
And then, of course, how, it, how they deal with, with death and, and approaching death as it comes to them. And, and then when they enter into death, of course, that difference is eternal. But as you can see in this passage and through many of the passages we looked at that Bob read for us this morning, it may not appear that way now in your life. Um, and that's your second line there. It may not appear that way in life that Jesus makes a big difference for you. In fact, if you look at the life of the faithful throughout Scripture, whether it's Jeremiah or Jesus or Moses, their life could be viewed as a turn for the worse when they live faithfully. Saul of Tarsus, he was doing quite well apart from Jesus. And if you just looked with, with human eyes and, and just how's Saul doing, how's Saul of Tarsus doing before you get to Acts chapter 9, you say, he's doing quite well. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's rising up faster than anyone is in his age, in his community, and he has the respect of all. In fact, when Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, some people were doing it to please him, killing somebody to please him. And they, they lay their, their coats, their garments at, at Saul's feet as Stephen has been stoned to death. So in life, it may not appear that you have an advantage if you believe in Jesus. Because, number one, the wicked often prosper in this life. The wicked often prosper in this life. Um, we read from chapter 21. You can turn back there if you want to. It'll take you a page. Verse 25, it says, there, there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Ahab is not following the Lord. He has surrounded himself, as we talked about last week, he has surrounded himself with prophets of Baal who are just, you're on, they're on his payroll telling him what he wants to hear. And the one who goes to, to fetch the one prophet of, of, of God, Micaiah, you know, tells him, hey, just agree with us. Everyone's agreeing. Don't make waves. Just agree. Um, but things seem to be going well for Ahab in his evil. Uh, in chapter 21 as well, he had just killed a man uh, through his wife and stolen his vineyard. He didn't object to that. He didn't say, Jezebel, you just killed this guy and took his vineyard? Enough. Let's find his relatives and give, the, give them his vineyard, uh, their proper inheritance, and let's compensate them. Uh, for the death. And by the way, we're in Israel and that's a death penalty for you, Jezebel. Um, he doesn't do that. He just happily goes down to take the vineyard. Um, that's the evil kind of person. Naboth is prospering from being evil. He's prospering from having somebody murdered and, and from stealing Naboth's inheritance, um, his, his land. Um, if you look at 1629, the introduction to Ahab, we learn that he ruled for 22 years. He'd been doing evil for 22 years. He has these little pockets of, uh, of, of, you know, very brief pockets of turning to the Lord for something, but he turns quickly back to evil. But 
22 years. I mean, the church is like 23 years old. That's a long time. You know, when the church started, Larissa was in third grade. Um, so, you know, she's 31 now. So, or yeah, so um, that's a long time. That's a lot of, that's a lot of life, 22 years. And he's prospering during all this time. Verse 39, look here in this passage, verse 39. Um, he's fortified all these cities and he's built a palace for himself. And the palace is inlaid with ivory. Okay, you got to have a lot of wealth if you're inlaying the palace with ivory. Um, there's not a forest of ivory that you can go to. <laughs> you know, you're piecemealing that stuff uh, together. Um, Ecclesiastes 8.14, this became, I think, my favorite verse of Scripture. I'm not a big fan of having a favorite verse of Scripture, uh, but it made itself very real to me a number of years ago. Uh, Bob read this for us. Um, after This is Solomon writing Ecclesiastes. He's at the end of his life. He's had the first half, his, half of his life, roughly, being very faithful to the Lord and doing great things for the Lord and God's people prospering and having a wonderful time in the promised land and, and faithful time in the promised land because of him. And the second half of his life, just going, removing all barriers to sin. And he looks back on his life and that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. And so what Bob read to us from Ecclesiastes 12, and, and you, can, you can see it there in your, in your bulletin, if I can find my bulletin here. Um, it's your preparing for the hearing of God's word. These are the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. Look at that there in your bulletin, uh, preparing for hearing God's word. This is Solomon's conclusion at the end of his life. All his studying, all his philosophizing, <laughs> all his experiencing life. Now all has been heard. This is the judge talking. After all the evidence has been submitted. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. How should you live your life? Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. But notice what he said earlier. Bob also read for us from Ecclesiastes 8.14. This is what is became my favorite verse. There's something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Solomon is noted and he spills it across the pages of Ecclesiastes in life, if you look at appearances, you say it's all meaningless. It doesn't matter. I can live a righteous life and I get what the wicked man deserves. And these wicked men, they live wicked lives and they get what I should be getting for living my righteous life. This is meaningless. And what Solomon is saying there about things being meaningless, he's saying appearances are meaningless. Because 
it could be that somebody's suffering because he's being faithful to God. Or it could be they're suffering because they've killed six people and they've been caught. Appearances are meaningless. But life, Solomon concludes, here is the end of the matter, as he says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Here's the end of the matter. Now all has been heard. You, you, you can't, you won't experience justice on the earth. When you get justice, it's a bonus. It's the bottom line of Ecclesiastes. Life is unjust and unfair things will happen to you. In, in, my, in my bright and, and uh, um, uh, relatively suffer-free life, I've had a very nice life. God has been very kind to me. That's something like when I was a senior in high school scoring the most goals on my soccer team, but not getting the most, or the most offensive player, the best offensive player, you know, award, uh, because I was getting a, another thing and they weren't, wouldn't get two awards. So that's, that's the, that's how tough my life has been. <laughs> Other people, I get this, this uh, monthly magazine from the, the ministry voice of the martyrs. And then, you know, there's these people dying for their faith. Um, you know, they, they know what that's like, but the wicked prosper in this life. And that's what, that's what Solomon noted. You know, there are wicked men who get what the righteous men deserve. And so you can look around there and, and perhaps be discouraged. But don't be. Uh, don't be. Number two. Um, don't be discouraged by this, that wicked men prosper in life. And, however, don't live in the ways of the wicked. Don't observe that wicked people are doing wicked things and they're popular and successful and wealthy uh, and succeeding in whatever it is that you may wish you were succeeding in. Don't live in the ways of the wicked, walking in the ways of the evil one, for, and here's the point of this passage, for disaster, for disaster is coming to them, to those who live wickedly. It's tempting when you see wicked people prospering, um, prospering in friendships, um, you know, when you watch a college graduation, the guy who the guy who gets the most cheers, that's the party guy. That's that's the wicked get guy, right? Everyone likes him because like, hey man, you know, he's he's the slosh. Um, and and you've lived your life in faithfulness as you've gone to gone to college and and you've been faithful to the Lord and you don't have this big roar from the crowd cheering you on when you graduate. And you say, has it been worth it? Um, you see other people prospering in friendships. Everybody likes so-and-so. Or maybe you see someone prospering in, in prestige. Um, maybe you see somebody prospering in, in finances or at their job and they're advancing in their job. Um, I was, uh, you know, I'm listening to this podcast that's put on by Dana Carvey and, and uh, David Spade, two Saturday Night Live former cast members. And, and the, the one from two weeks ago was interviewing Garrett Morris, who was in the original um, crew of Saturday Night Live, one of the people that came on in 75 with Chevy Chase. Steve Martin was never a cast member. Know that. Don't say that. Don't embarrass yourself. Um, 
uh, but, but there with Dan Aykroyd and, and John Belushi and all that. And they were talking to Garrett Morris and they were talking about he was hired on as a writer first. He'd actually written plays that had shown off Broadway before he was on SNL. And that was his main thing. And that's how he got hired. So he got hired as a writer, but he didn't get uh, into many skits. And he was talking about how one of the reasons he didn't get into the skits is he didn't learn that you need to go to the after party after the show was over. They always have an after party and they're up all, all night. And he said, that's kind of where relationships are built. It's kind of like in the business world when the guys go out golfing or whatever it is. Um, and he didn't learn that. And so he didn't get into skits because they were, you know, giving the parts to those who were their buddy, their drinking buddies, you know, after the show. Uh, but that may, you may feel some of that too. Um, that you're not one that's included. Um, or you may just look around those who have succeeded. I, I know in my life when I've been around wealthy people, you know, and you go into somebody's, I've gone into people's houses and it's like, wow, this is really nice. You know, and they've got a car that I get in, they're driving me someplace and it's really nice. And it's like, man. And, you know, it's like Will Smith and, and um, what's, the, what's the movie where he takes the job as a stockbroker? Stock not 17 pounds, pursuit of happiness. And, and he's, you know, he's there, I think homeless at this point. And he's a salesman and he's got his, his son and they're sleeping in the bathroom of the subway, locking the door. And he's on the sidewalk and a guy pulls up in front of this brokerage firm. This is a true story uh, that, he, that he plays. This guy pulls up in front of this brokerage firm, I think in San Francisco, and he's in this Ferrari. And Will Smith stops the guy who's just parked his Ferrari in front of the brokerage firm. And he says, what do you do? <laughs> I want to do that. And that's what this Will Smith's character does. He learns how to become a stockbroker so he can have that, that, that car. But it's nice. We feel like, have I made a mistake in what I'm doing in my life and, and how I'm treating people and that, that I'm not lying at work, I'm not cheating my customers, or I, I'm not just going and, and partying with everybody so that I can be popular too and be homecoming king or queen or whatever, or whatever it is. Um, but God says to you from here and from Psalm 37, listen to Psalm 37 that Bob read for us, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, that's the promised land, and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. That's final judgment talk there. There's, there's judgment in the end. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, uh, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Um, verse 17, here's the disaster that comes upon Ray, uh, comes upon Ahab. Um, verse 17, uh, Micaiah the prophet has seen this, that Ahab's going to die. God's people are going to be out there after battle with no master because the king is dead. Verse 20, um, God has uh, uh, approved the enticement of Ahab's prophets so that Ahab would be enticed unto his death. Verse 23, God declared disaster 
decreed disaster upon Ahab. Verse 35, indeed, Ahab dies. Uh, verse uh, 30, um, even though Ahab disguised himself <laughs> and told Jehoshaphat, isn't that funny? Why isn't Jehoshaphat a little suspicious of this? Hey, I'll disguise myself. You dress in your royal robes and go into battle. <laughs> Even though Ahab has arranged this, God protects Jehoshaphat, who's a righteous king. The king who had said, we should ask Yahweh, the Lord, about this before we go into battle. Jehoshaphat has like a, a lifetime of being righteous. Um God protects Jehoshaphat in battle, even though Jehoshaphat's a marked man in his royal robes and all the charioteers of the king of, of the king of Aram have been told to go after the king. So all the charioteers, you know, all the, the rest of the army is just fighting, but all the charioteers are going after the king of Israel, whom they think is Jehoshaphat, who's king of, of Judah. But God arranges it anyway. God is sovereign and he will bring it about. He decrees the death of Ahab, and he brings it about by a, you like this? A random arrow that just happens to fly in between the pieces of armor of Ahab, and it's a death blow. One arrow hits in the right place, right in a little slit between the pieces of armor, and Ahab, and Ahab dies. So a... Though the wicked may prosper today, things will flip for them. Though they may be living in palaces of ivory, things will flip for them and for their king. Um, though Ahab was in that uh, palace with ivory around it, he goes from that to a painful wound, bleeding all day, leaning up against against the front of his chariot while he bleeds and, and is standing in a pool of his own blood at the floor of his chariot um, to his death and to dogs licking up his blood uh, back in Samaria, which had been uh, foretold uh, of him uh, by the prophet. Um, you know, sometimes when I see one of these guys on the highway going by at 85 or 90 miles per hour, I think, man, I wish I were doing that. <laughs> Zoom there. But then five minutes later, when I see who's been caught by the state highway patrol, <laughs> I say, oh, that's that guy. Um, justice, will, justice will come. And that guy not only is getting an expensive ticket, but also his insurance rates have gone up for the next two years. Right? It, it looks like there's advantage when they go whipping by you. Uh, but that's not a lasting advantage. And God wants you to know that in your life. As you live your life in faithfulness to the Lord, other people will not have the constraints of the law of God upon them, and it'll look like they're getting ahead. But even if they get ahead all their life till their dying day, disaster is coming upon him, just like it was for Ahab. So, uh, Luke 12, 16 through 21, that Bob read for us. The rich man is doing so well. He says, I don't even have enough storage space for all the stuff I'm accumulating. So he builds bigger barns and fills it through 
And God says, you fool, your life is required of you this very night. And you can't take that stuff with you. Who will get this stuff? And you're not rich toward God. Psalm 37, 2. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Uh, verse 9 of Psalm 37. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 10. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. Verse 13. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Revelation 20, verse 10. Revelation 20, verse 15. Um, those who are wicked will be cast into the lake of fire when Jesus returns. Their day is, their day is coming. Just as those first reading this in exile in Babylon were cast out of the kingdom, uh, out of the promised land, um, in 2 Kings 17, um, Israel was kicked out of the promised land. Uh, 2 Kings 23 through 25, Judah, the southern kingdom, was kicked out of the promised land. They were wicked, and they had not spent their lives worshiping the Lord God. And so they read this text, and they say, we're Ahab. And that's the choice for us as believers. We can see the wicked prospering around us and say, do I want to be Ahab and, and perhaps, not guaranteed, perhaps prosper for a time, but in the end meet disaster that the Lord has decreed for me? Because B, all the deeds, all the deeds of the unbelieving, even the hidden ones, will be punished. So that's Ecclesiastes 12, 14. That's in your preparation for the hearing of God up there. Jeremiah 17. There's no deed that's been done. Revelation 12, 20, verse 12. There's, there are books in heaven where all the deeds of all people are written. And that's what people are judged by in the end when Jesus returns. So nothing escapes. Nothing escapes. And if you're, if you're a believer... All those deeds recorded that you've done that were wicked deeds, those were paid for by Jesus. Not one that was left out. All placed upon Jesus on the cross, 1 Peter 2, 24. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's the good news for us. Now see, so constantly remember that unbelievers, as they prosper, are only prospering temporarily temporarily but as peter says to his uh to those he's writing to in in first peter he says i know you came from a, a pagan background and you've got all these friends who are still carousing out there still doing wicked things out there and they're mocking you because you're not running with them in their dissipation is what peter says and then peter says but they will give account to him who judges the living and the dead. So we remember that. We remember that unbelievers, as they prosper, are only prospering temporarily. So number three, for your benefit, for your benefit in this life and hereafter, follow Jesus, the righteous king. Follow Jehoshaphat, uh, not, not Ahab. And for now, that means following Jesus. You know, Jehoshaphat was the son of David. 
He was the one God's people should have been following. All of God's people, all 12 tribes should have been under Jehoshaphat, the son of David. Uh, David, it was declared to him in 2 Samuel 7 that, that God's people from then on, from David on, would be led by a king. And that king would be one of David's sons, always, forever, 2 Samuel 7, 14. It's an unending kingdom. It has a hiatus with the exile, and then it returns. Thus, Jesus' message when he arrives on the scene, the kingdom of God is at hand. Son of David is here. I'm picking up the kingdom of God again. And Jesus has not succeeded as king, but he remains uh, king forever. Um, so um, we follow Jesus now, uh, not whomever is popular and prospering apart from the love of God. And here's why we follow Jesus. A, why following Jesus as king is superior. Because A, Jesus lives on. Jesus lives on. He's not like Ahab who goes and uh, follows the advice of the wicked prophets and doesn't live on dies. That's the lesson for us. Those who are not living in God's ways perish. Luke 13. So Jesus says, you know, wicked perish, repent or perish, Jesus says. And, and Ahab doesn't repent after uh, multiple opportunities, after prophets have approached him time after time, and he doesn't repent. And so he perishes. But Jesus doesn't perish. He's the unperishing king. Notice Jehoshaphat, when he was about to perish in this battle, what he does, he cries out, presumably to the Lord. And somehow, we don't know how, these uh, Aramean charioteers figure out, ooh, this is an Ahab. Maybe they had a southern accent. <laughs> and they said, he, he said, you know, Jehoshaphat said, y'all. <laughs> And so, you know, if we were if we were, you know, aiming our spears right now at Ahab, he would have said, "Use guys, right?" Um, <laughs> uh, but somehow, God sovereignly works works that out, and Jehoshaphat cries out to the Lord and lives on. Hmm, who cries out to the Lord and lives on? Jesus. Sounds like a squirrel, but we'll say Jesus. Jesus is on the cross, isn't he? And he says, Father, cries out to the Lord, why have you forsaken me? But we learn that the Father hasn't forsaken Jesus. For the Father visits Jesus. He raises him from the dead. And Jesus, like Jehoshaphat, lives on. We follow Jesus because he's a living king and always a king. Always living to protect and fight, protect us and fight so that makes sense. That's the smart thing to do because Jesus lives on. Uh, Mark uh, 15, 34 is where Jesus cries out to the Lord and we see in his resurrection that he lives on. And then Jesus appears to John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. And Jesus says, addresses John this way. He says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So follow Jesus because Jesus lives on. He's a living king who will never die and you'll lose your protection. 
He's always living to protect you and to provide for you. B, B. We follow Jesus. Why this makes sense? Why this is smart to do? Because Jesus' kingdom also lives on. Jesus' kingdom also lives on. Hebrews 1, 3. We find that Jesus has raised up the life and having entered into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1, 3. This is a throne. Jesus is sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning for the sake of his people in heaven and on earth. Um, Revelation 5, 6 through 10, we see Jesus is living on and he comes up to the throne of God to take that. So number one there, B1, bananas and pajamas fans, there you go. B1, Jesus lives on as king right now, blessing his people. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, it talks about the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and he's at the right hand of God, and all rulers, authorities, and powers, all evil spirits have been made subject to him, to Jesus, and Jesus is ruling and reigning for the sake of his church. That's what Paul tells us there in Ephesians 1. So being a part of his kingdom is the thing you want. And so Jesus is announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's good news. Because if you're in the kingdom of God, if you're led, if your king is the son of David, which Jesus is, if you're a citizen of that kingdom, you are protected. In contrast, number two, in contrast, Satan's kingdom, the current kingdom of the world. So Jesus refers to it. The epistles refer to it. The kingdom of this world Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, will perish. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 31, this world in its present form, this kingdom is passing away. It's passing away. So don't be a part of a kingdom that's passing away. Uh, don't be a member of the Soviet Union in 1988. You only got a year left. <laughs> You're in trouble. Um, be a part of the eternal kingdom, the king, Satan's kingdom, the current kingdom of the world will perish. And, and when we read in, in Revelation about uh, Babylon the Great ruling over the kingdoms of the earth and all kings being loyal to her, we find out that she is done for. And so are the kings who follow her. And so, um, number three, just the flip side of this coin, Jesus' kingdom is forever and will never perish. Second Samuel 7, 6. David's house and David's kingdom will endure forever before me, says the Lord. David's house and his kingdom will endure forever before the Lord. David's throne will be established forever. Or as Daniel sees in his vision at night in Daniel 7, 14, his dominion, the one who has come up and appeared to God uh, coming with the clouds and has approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence and was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, a kingdom. Then Daniel says, in contrast to these other kingdoms I've just talked to you about, Babylon and Greece, and, or Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, in contrast to this, his dominion, this is Daniel 7, 14, his dominion, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never perish.
Revelation 11:15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Okay, Sunday school people, hear that? The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Second coming. The last trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Corinthians 15. The last trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world, this current system of things where the wicked prosper, this kingdom of the world has become, has been taken over, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, and the meek shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. That's Christians, the meek. That's who Jesus is talking about. Christians inherit the earth, and Jesus will rule over us on the earth forever and ever. So Jesus and his kingdom have not and will not perish. And then realize this, see, if you are in, if you're in Jesus' kingdom, you will not perish either. If you're in Jesus' kingdom, you will not perish either. That's really, that's the gospel right there. Get in Jesus' kingdom. That's the gospel. Because everyone in Jesus' kingdom never perishes because their king is undefeated. Their king will never lose. Their king will eternally protect his people. That's the issue. Are you in Jesus' kingdom through faith? Or are you outside of his kingdom and a part of the kingdom of the world? Following, probably unbeknownst to you, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, which all of us were prior to faith. So if you're in Jesus' kingdom, you will not perish either. John 5, 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. John eleven twenty five. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Colossians 3, 1, you now have been raised with Christ. And lastly, besides you're not perishing because you are in this non-perishing kingdom with a non-perishing king, Jesus, D, you want to be in Jesus' kingdom also because Jesus' kingdom both now, that's the church, Jesus' kingdom now, and in eternity is the promised land in which you will have Soul, S-O-U-L, soul prosperity. Consisting of things like peace, love, blessing, and rest. When we talk about the wicked prospering, they are not prospering in soul. They're tortured inside. They're not at peace. They're not at rest. They feel guilt. They know judgment is coming. And they try to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. They know they owe to God everything and they're not giving Him anything. In fact, they're hiding from Him. They're not at peace in soul. Typically, their marriages are not doing well. Typically, they're not doing so well in their relationship with their mom and dad or their relationships with their kids. Things are not at peace there. 
They're not at rest. They're not experiencing joy, even though the external things look great for them. And even though when you walk into their house, they're acting like everything is okay. Because no one wants to show, well, actually, I'm pretty miserable. Um, especially if you're not a believer, because that's all you have, the physical. But the good news is the, pros the prosperity, the prospering we want to do, the prospering that's most important is this prospering of soul, and you get that now. And what happens when Jesus returns is the physical side of it gets added to it. And it's just now, in terms of the physical stuff, you're probably suffering. Now, for some of us, we're, you know, it's, it's okay. Some Christians are like Abraham. They are faithful with lots of stuff. Abraham was faithful. Abraham had lots of stuff. And he was faithful with that lots of stuff. Not many people can handle that. And so God keeps us <laughs> where we won't stray from him. Uh, as, as Paul says in First Timothy 6, because the, the, the money can be a root for somebody of all kinds of evil and some for going after money have shipwrecked their faith. So only a few can handle that. And it's okay. You know, if some, you know, can handle that um, and, and, and the church can benefit from that too. But for most of us, for most Christians, um, you know, even in America, it's not a, it's not a case of having, you know, fifth row tickets at, you know, on the center ice, the Hurricanes games, right? Wouldn't that be nice? You had season tickets right, right there. Yeah. Um, uh, but most of us, that's not the case. But um, for the Christian, there's peace and rest. Listen to God's promise to David and David's sons from 2 Samuel 7, 9, what we call the Davidic covenant. God says to David, I have been with you, David, wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And now I will provide a place for my people so that they can no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. So he's saying through you, David, you want the people in the promised land won't be oppressed by Moabites and Ammonites and Philistines and all these peoples we read about. But through you, through you, David, a faithful you, David, and your sons, as they're faithful, you won't be oppressed by foreign, by foreign people coming into the promised land as they did at the beginning. Talking about the period of Judges and during Saul, their beginning period in the promised land where they were oppressed and have done ever since I appointed leaders over my people Israel. And I will also give you rest from all your enemies. This is what the people who are under the son of David get. Rest from all our enemies. Not being oppressed by Satan through the use of our sin natures. Sinning and experiencing the consequences of that. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is what we get, rest for our souls because we're under Jesus, the son of David. Forgiveness and God's love, Colossians 1.12. The father has qualified you to share in the inheritance for that Old Testament reference. You have an inheritance uh, in the saints of light, in the kingdom of light. 
for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's rescued us out of the kingdom of the world where what mattered was physical stuff, physical prosperity, popularity among the unbelieving, things. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have the soul stuff, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But not only do we get God's love, the forgiveness of our sins, but as he brings us into the kingdom of light, we get love from the people around us, other members of the kingdom of light, other citizens of heaven. And so we come into the church and this is a, a wonderful place to be. It's a place where we don't have to defend ourselves or, or worry about being uh, torn down verbally or, or, or slandered. We can, we can set our guard down. And Jesus said, this is the way it's to be. And if you've been in the church here a while, you know this is the way it is. It's a wonderful place to come in these doors. And Jesus ordered it. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so we get this for our souls, for our person, the love of other people. It's like Jesus said, hey, if you believe in me, you may lose your mother and father, your brother and sister and your friends, but you'll gain fathers and mothers and brothers and friends because you'll come into the church and these people will be your, your brothers and fathers to you and mothers to you. And it will be much, you'll, you'll be much more blessed even though you've lost physical stuff as you've come to faith in me. So summary, summary. Some, non, some non-believers for now prosper. Know that and understand that till the day you die or Jesus comes back. There'll be non-believers around you, some who are prospering. So as a believer, you must remember that their prosperity is only temporary. Non-believers prosperity is only temporary and remember that now in any eternity, uh, being in Jesus' kingdom, being in Jesus' kingdom is infinitely better. Just think of it in terms of time. You know, if you live to be 100 years old, 100 years versus eternity. You know, you want your eternity to be better. That's the good bet. Someone came up to you and said, do you want 100 bad years and eternity that's good? You say, yeah. You don't say the other way around. Say, well, no, I'll take the hundred years instead of the eternity, you know, the eternity of years. That'll be good for me. So remember that prosperity that you see in the world is just temporary. Don't live for that. Don't admire that. Don't envy that. Don't covet that. And then thirdly, in your summary, it is the guarantee of a prosperity of soul that is much greater that is what we get in the kingdom of God is a guarantee of a prosperity of soul that is much greater, much greater than what the unbeliever gets. Certainly in his soul in this life, but also even great, more greatly so in eternity. Let's pray.